This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Buildings with Character. FBI Gold. The R-Talk. And Helen Smith. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and I'm Mrs. Claus. Ho, 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 and I'm Santa Claus, here to spill the cocoa beans on the kerfuffle here at the North Pole. Kerfuffle? What kerfuffle? Well, you see, my dear, the elves have been acting a bit hmm, strangely in the workshop. Oh, Santa, what's going on with our elves? Rumor has it a pesky imp has sneaked into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. Oh my goodness, a mischievous imp at the North Pole. Yes, indeed, and the tricky part is our elves can be quite the mischief makers themselves, so I'm having trouble telling who's the imp. And that's where Weird Little Elf comes in, right? Exactly. Weird Little Elf is a holiday card game for all ages. Players take turns being me, ho, 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 Santa, and ask the elves one simple question. And the rest play the elves who answer the question. But secretly, one of them is the imp, following a special rule like scratch your nose or cross your eyes that they have to do on the sly. Accuse the imp correctly three times and you win. Plus, it's an acute palm-sized box. Perfect for a stocking stuffer. You can get your holiday shopping done early and give a delightful surprise to your family, co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. And don't forget our gamer buddies. Ho, 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 they'll love it. We can get one for them and maybe sneak in a few rounds ourselves. So this Christmas, let's spread some cheer with Weird Little Elf, the ultimate holiday party game. Ho, ho, ho. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted, wood-panel-lined confines of the gaming hut, where beloved Patreon backer Alexander Araballo asks, how would you make a building more of a character than a setting in a story? In particular, making it something of an ineffable and unpredictable cosmic entity, not one that takes on the role of an antagonist, but rather is a source of strange aid to bemused viewpoint or player characters. Robin, Alexander has cleverly ruled out haunted houses, which is my specialty. So what have you got for living or at least character-filled buildings? And uh, don't say Gormenghast. Right. So I, I think even though we don't have like a full-on haunted house, the house that's trying to kill you, we can certainly have a supernatural spirit of the house, an egregore, a panate, as it were. A genius loci. A genius loci. Or you can go in the science fiction direction, you can have your, you know, good old-fashioned AI embedded in the building or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so the role that the building has been assigned is that of a, a non-player character, and not as the bad guy, but as suggested here, either as, uh, I guess, sort of an informant or a provider of clues So I guess the first thing we want to do is set up what is the motivation of this character, which just happens to be a building. And so the first thing you do is establish that. Why does it want to provide information or help or a bemused chorus like 
viewpoint nuggets to the uh, players and what is it trying to do. So presumably, since we don't have an antagonist, there's some other force that is threatening the building or threatening things that the building wants and therefore wishes to help the player characters. So the most obvious thing the building could want, its big motivation, is to not be destroyed mm. or corrupted by whatever the antagonistic entity is. So from motivation, that's pretty clear. Next, we have to go to how would a building provide information on an ongoing basis to the player characters, Ken? Well, I mean, the sort of classic answer is, you know, the book falls out of the shelf in the library and it happens to contain the clue you're looking for. Or the rose window in the attic shows you a weird scene that is not the backyard, but is something else. Or the paintings, you know, come alive and talk or gesture Things like that. The building's furnishings basically provide the conduit for the information that otherwise you would have to leave and do an actual scene to get. And I think that some of this building living fantasy is sort of a sublimation of the old, you know, servant fantasy where, you know, we all want Alfred, right, to take care of us after we come back in from a long day of Batmaning, make our dinners and arrange our social calendar. And we just are Batman and Alfred does all the annoying part. And that sort of servant fantasy, the Jeeves, the Alfred, the whatever, you know, is displaced because American, modern Americans often find it a little creepy to fantasize about servants, but fantasizing about a magic building is, is cool. There's not a problem there. You don't have to pay the magic building's health insurance. You also know, yeah, I mean, you have to pay the property taxes, I guess, roughly the same thing. Make sure its roof doesn't leak, which, you know, again, can run into your health insurance money. But the larger point being that a big motivation for these buildings in these stories is sort of that feudal obligation that, you know, you live in the building, therefore the building takes care of you. That's its job. It's like the butler. Its job is to, you know, open doors and polish silver. The building's job is to give you weird clues and inform you of the supernatural dangers that you've unwittingly or perhaps wittingly triggered by living in this neighborhood or being the kind of people who go open vampire tombs or whatever it is you're doing during your Batman part of your job. So the motivation is often no more than just, I'm an ally for the same reason as the old guy in the tavern was your ally. It's necessary to get the story going. So the, um, I think that you're right, that it gives you a, you know, a better space for drama. If the building has its own motivation that overlaps with, but is not the same as keep the player characters safe and comfortable. I think that it's more fun if the building has sort of its own agenda. Maybe its agenda is to have a couple of the player characters marry off and have kids. And that's what the building really wants is kids. It doesn't want a bunch of grown people who go around hunting vampires. It wants kids to play in it. And all of its machinations are also toward that. And that's why you keep stumbling over, you know, attractive concupiscent members of your child rearing other half because the building's throwing them into your path to get those kids. And that's, you know, I mean, it also doesn't want, you know, the dangers to happen, but it's got its own agenda and its own motive. And I think thinking about that, as opposed to just the building is Alfred or the building is, you know, Mycroft from Moon is a Harsh Mistress or whatever. I think that makes the play more fun and is also, you know, allows it to be a little more oblique than just, oh, you want to go to the old mill. Here's the atlas that fell out of the 
library and open to the page with the old mill on it. And that can get super samey, samey. And also, as I indicated, it sort of makes the game a little more boring because it's like, oh, we don't have to go do research and talk to those scary NPCs. We can just cozy up in our building and eventually it'll tell us what's going on. So maybe the building should also be, look, if you're going to be able to raise kids, you'd better get out there and do some adventuring and not just hang around me all the time. I've got stuff to do. You're positing here that the building is an ongoing headquarters for the player characters. Another way to do it is, if you just want to have the building feature in one scenario, is that, yes, indeed, the house was a protector for a past group of heroic characters who did the sorts of things that your player characters are doing now, and something has happened to them. It could be that that was three generations ago, and it has been looking for the reincarnated versions of the uh, player characters, or just that you have a reason to go there, and once you go there, it goes, hey, wait a minute, these are potentially the people who I can recruit to be the new legion of occult investigators or whatever it is, so that the player characters in the middle of a campaign can come to the building, and it can then start to, it's trying to protect itself from whatever thing is trying to destroy it, but also it's trying to sort of, with its limited communication skills, pitch the player characters on whether they want to become, you know, its its adjutants, as it were. And so that then either, uh, if you want this then as a GM to be an ongoing element in the campaign going forward, uh, you can give them the option of signing up with the building. Or I have a feeling the typical group of players would be somewhat creeped out by that and mm-hmm. might not want a building with an agenda uh, sort of pushing them around. So they... They might say goodbye, see a Sayonara building, or they might decide to hang around and uh, and live there. The next question then, I guess, is we don't have an antagonist yet. So what is the force that is trying to destroy or corrupt the building? So we have to assume that there's some sort of energy or fact of its uh, original creation that makes it attractive to the bad guys in the campaign. It could be a power battery. It could be a portal that allows access from the outer dark or a, a Rila or whatever other uh, foul dimension it is. And that may historically have been the role of the previous people who built it or the people who used to live there. They got favors from the building in exchange for also guarding it so that it wouldn't fall into the wrong hands. And that's why it needs the player characters to come in and do that. And again, its challenge is it's a building. It can't talk to you except uh, sort of obliquely maybe it can possibly write things on a, a blackboard or uh, but more likely as you suggested earlier it has to work through uh, paintings and books and other things uh, in there and so here what you need is some sort of anomaly or event that will uh, cause the player characters to go to that building and begin to explore it and determine just how long-term they want their relationship with it to be. The other thing that, you know, your notion of the building as a portal or an etheric window implies is that the building might be traumatized. It, you know, it's been exposed to ghosts or the outer dark or Cthulhu or whatever for a long time. And it's, it's suffering. It's got a condition and it wants the characters to bring, you know, cleansing to it. And that's one of its motivations, or maybe it wants to die in a fire and get all this out of the way. And the player's job really is to convince the building that things are not so bad and that, you know, it can, it it has reasons to stay structurally sound, that it's not doomed to perennially be the site of all these horrible events. And that could be a motivation. The building could just be super traumatized about a bad thing that happened. So let's say that the man in the building shot the wife 
you know, a hundred years ago. And so the building is sure no guns can go off in this building. We're not having that happen again. And the players discover that, you know, perhaps, you know, ideally, you know, at a innocent moment, but possibly at a dangerous moment. So the building, I think adding that element of its personality, it's sort of, you know, not just its agenda, but also its damage, not necessarily literally, but it could also be literally is another way to model a building that again is not hateful or mean. It's not an evil building, but it's been very badly treated. And so it doesn't just come right out and trust people. It's been hurt before, you know, they thought they were a nice occult investigator, but it turned out they were in league with the, the evil force, the, uh, you know, the Le Corbusier and his team of undead architects or whoever the bad guys are in this uh, setting. And so, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily trust everyone who shows up with a with with a ten foot pole and some high heart boots. Another possibility is that if people are installing smart home technology in an older home, possibly that house has been guarded by a protective spirit of some kind, and now it has been trapped in the computer program that runs the house, mm-hmm. and it doesn't want to be that tied to the house, or it certainly doesn't want to be a computer program, or perhaps. It doesn't want the evil tech billionaire to copy its code and replicate it mm-hmm. across, you know, many, many different multiple iterations. And so that could give you sort of the techno magic version of this story where it kind of lures you to the house with, you know, possibly weird reports or possibly just you have discovered something sinister about the tech bro conspiracy and you follow them to the house. And your goal in this instance then is to free the uh the guardian spirit from uh the code and turn him back from a uh, computer program back into a you know regular old egregore yeah and you have your classic uh, case going you know at least back to the uninvited and probably farther back where you have a good ghost and a bad ghost in a house and you could certainly have the original genius loci is you know doesn't like alexa the new kid that showed up but is weird and creepy and always talks to other stuff and alexa is obviously in this case yes the the servitor of the bad tech bro conspiracy. And and so you have, you know, things in the building that happen to annoy or hurt the player characters are the bad ghost that's, that's in there. And the building doesn't want to be haunted by the bad ghost, whether it be Alexa or an actual bad ghost. And it's trying to get it out, but it can't just say, no, these manifestations are good. And those manifestations are evil because the players just see, ah, the doors are opening and shutting and there's weird cold spots and there's messed up stuff happening with the paintings and things are falling off the shelves and they have to parse out which is the building trying to get the spirit out of it and which is the mean spirit that once we exorcise it, we're going to have a grateful and helpful building to use as our headquarters or at least be our buddy. And on that note, I think it's time for us to exit this building and see what other structure or perhaps unrelated segment waits for us on the other side of this commercial. Green Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball with three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, 
a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the king in yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's tale of Belle Epoque terror. A casket at Latil, village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-matched minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. The bulletin board with the forensic evidence, the wanted posters up on the wall, and of course the battered police desk that were once more looking at the crime blotter, this time in response to a request from beloved backer Josh King. Josh says, what is the real reason the FBI conducted a dig in the dead of night in remote western Pennsylvania for a purported seven tons of gold and told the metal detectorist who prompted them to the location that they didn't find anything? Surely it couldn't be the hundreds of millions of dollars. So this is a very weird story, Ken, in which yeah. one repeatedly asks, why is the FBI doing this? <laughs> but why don't you step back a few steps and start at the beginning? Uh, this is based, as uh, Josh uh, sent us, on an article in Fortune magazine by Michael Rubencam. And, and you have found much other research as well. Yeah. Another uh, good source was an article in The Atlantic by Chris Heath, which I had to find. I didn't have to find. I was drawn to it by the fact that this is a crazy story, as you mentioned. So the original version of the crazy story is that a gold shipment of 52 ingots of 50 pounds apiece, so 2,600 pounds of gold, leaves Wheeling, West Virginia, in June 1863, on route to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to be, you know, the payroll for Union troops. It gets bushwhacked, either by opportunistic drivers or Reb sympathizers. The gold vanishes and is supposedly buried somewhere in the Pennsylvania backcountry. There is the famous, you know, one survivor who gasps out and, you know, never uh, reveals what happened. Right. And so just because there are very specific numbers about the gold and how much it weighed, that documentary feel of those details doesn't mean that yeah. it's more than an alleged story. Be because the document was written down by an unknown person in 1965 and sent to the Military History Institute. 
which apparently had an ongoing file, dumb treasure stories. <laughs> and so when they get sent a document, they're a, they're a proper archive. They don't throw it out. They put it in their dumb treasure stories file. Right. Because, and treasure legends also could go in the elliptony hut, but this time we put it in crime. Block right. Because FBI. Because the FBI. But speaking of the elliptony hut, there is a counter theory that the gold was not union gold. It was, Canadian gold smuggled down to pay for the Knights of the Golden Circle, the secret Confederate secret society that was going to use it to pay for rebel guns and then obviously to economically take over the Union and do bad things. Right. And I can say on behalf of the Magic Beaver that we had nothing to do with this. You had nothing to do with You deny it categorically. Yes. Well, the Knights of the Golden Circle are real. Might make a good segment for another episode, but this part of the behavior, not their historically attested MO. Let's just say that. So anyway, the story shows up in the Military History Institute. It begins to sort of filter out into treasure hunting magazines. A professional mentalist named Michael Malley is reading an article in the presence of a young kid named Dennis Parada. This is in the 1970s. He reads the article and begins to channel the gold bushwhackers. He douses on a map of Pennsylvania and finds Dent's Run and then says, Dennis, you run off and get dirt from Dent's Run, and I'll tell you where the gold is based on the dirt you bring me back, I'll douse for it. And so he douses. This is getting more leptonic as we go. Exactly. And so he douses the dirt and Dennis, you know, goes off and, you know, looks at it, but he can't find anything, sort of forgets it for a while. But in 2004, basically at the urge of his own desires, his now grown son who wants to run around with dad in the mountains, which is great fun. And another guy that he meets, he begins digging in the area and finds a cave near Dents Run, Pennsylvania, that is full of, is that torch marks? Is that old Civil War era tools? And he keeps bringing it to the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation, and they say, that's garbage left behind by campers. Why are you digging in the park? This is illegal. Stop doing it. And they tell him to stop doing it in 2005. And he says, well, they didn't say stop, stop. And then they tell him again in 2012. And apparently that's the one that sort of takes. So he's on a forum complaining that the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation is preventing him from finding this magic gold. And the guy who wrote the book literally on the Knights of the Golden Circle secret gold caches, a Wall Street Journal reporter named Warren Gettler wrote the book Rebel Gold, says, well, if you go to the federal government, because it's federal gold, right? It was supposedly meant to pay the union. It's federal property that would trump the State Department of Conservation, and then they could dig it up for you, and uh, you'd get a sweet finder's fee. And so, Gettler pulls on his strings. They contact the FBI in January of 2018. The FBI gets really excited. They come out right. to the site. And so, this brings us, again, to the why the FBI. Yeah. but <laughs> Because you would think that, like, doesn't the Park Service have their own police force, first of well, all? Well, the Park Service is in the federal parks. This is on a state park. This is on a state park. Okay. Right. And so, but also and there's... It is the art crimes unit of the FBI. Right. Because... Because it's gold. And that's gone art. Gone through the archaeology side of things. Because right. also, if, if this is treasury gold, mm-hmm. you would think there's a secret service would be the one. But it's the FBI. It's the FBI. Yes. Leaving the jurisdiction over the imaginary gold to one side, the FBI goes out to the site in January and February does its own geophysical survey that and this is a survey that they had to you know explain to a court to get authority to overrule the pennsylvania department of conservation this is all in their affidavit and according to their geophysical survey they find seven to nine tons not one and change 
of material with the density of gold under the dense run cave. They mount the dig on March 13th, 2018. There's a bunch of agents, some say 40, some say 70, lots of vehicles, and they keep Gettler and Parada off the mountain. They're like, well, it's, it's gross up there. You don't want to come up. Uh, we're all very busy. And they call it off at 4 p.m. They say, oh, the hole is full of water. We have to pump it out overnight. And we'll come back the next day. And they come back the next day. Once more, they're sort of kept down the hill. But eventually, they're allowed to come up and see a big empty hole. And the FBI says, no gold. Sorry. And they drive away. And Parada does not believe this for a minute, sues the FBI to make them show the records of the dig and whether or not they basically came back once annoying Dennis Parada and super annoying Warren Gettler are gone and move all the gold out and drive it away in armored trucks because there are ear witnesses that have come forward who do not seem to be buddies with Parada that say, yeah, we heard clanging and heavy machinery on that hill all night. And then there are eyewitnesses who say they saw loaded, heavily loaded armored trucks driving away in the early hours of the morning. And the FBI is saying, we never had any armored trucks. Stop lying. How dare you lie to the about the FBI? That hurts our feelings. So they stonewall. Now, can we tell from this story whether the law says that Parada would, in fact, be entitled to a finder's fee? No one has ever gotten to that point. <laughs> I mean, he has launched a suit, but yeah. it's very easy to launch suits in, in your nation. According um, to Parada and Gettler's memory of the meeting, the U.S. attorney agreed that they should get a finder's fee. Aha. Uh -huh. But. <laughs> There's a verbal contract allegedly. The verbal contract with the U.S. attorney. Now, once more, when the federal government has got nine tons of magic disappearing gold, maybe that verbal contract is, as they say, worth the paper it's printed on. But anyway, Parada also has a hobby of believing and doing weird things. So suing the FBI is just part of the fun in some cases. So the FBI stonewalls, they send garbage responses. They say, we got 47 boxes of information. It would take too long. You'd waste FBI time to go through all that. They send super low res black and white photographs that you can't, JPEGs that you right. can't make it, anything out exactly. in. It's like, hmm, that, I didn't think there was something dodgy going on. Like some of these murky JPEGs. Right. And so the judge compels them to send better pictures and fuller compliance and release that affidavit that demonstrates that at least at one point, the FBI was willing to lie to a court and say they believed there was gold there. Now, the FBI may have genuinely believed that there was gold there, but I think by this time in our lives, we're all familiar with law enforcement agencies filing affidavits with the courts. But they definitely did it. They had to do it in order to overrule the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation, which I suppose by now is leaning back, crossing its arms and saying, told you. So anyway, this is where we are. The case is ongoing. The FBI moved for a dismissal. The judge did not grant the dismissal. We're still in the process. Anything could happen, except I suspect the gold turning up. Parada, his theory is they moved the gold out, flew it to Russia, and then laundered it as being Russian gold to get it back to America because <laughs> he said, coincidentally, there was a plane crash in Siberia of a plane carrying nine tons of gold that dumped a bunch of gold out on the runway. And that happened like the day after the dig. So like on March 15th, the plane crashed in Siberia. So that you know, tears it ironclad logic, ironclad logic. Now things Parada also says is that new Ross castle in Nova Scotia is built by the Templars rather than by a 19th century blacksmith. And that he is digging up new Ross castle even now 
looking for Templars. And he also, by the way, Robin has a perpetual motion machine that uses magnets in his basement. And when the uh, Chris Heath at the Atlantic says, you could make more money with the perpetual motion machine than you can with gold. Parrot is like, well, you know, it's just a just a thing I have. Yeah, it's it's a drinking bird. Okay, it's a drinking bird. So so really, no one in this story looks at all credible is basically the thing. The FBI is either super embarrassed that it got dragged into this goofy treasure hunt and is trying to make it all go away by lying. And again, that obviously doesn't work. But it, I said FBI at the top of that sentence, or they did, in fact, find gold and stole it, and maybe it wasn't magic Knights of the Golden Circle gold or Templar gold, but it might have been some other gold that was Well, there. Ken, this is where we come in. Right. Uh, because the first thing you do is you look at a map to see right. what's near Dense Run, mm-hmm. and a couple of things jump out. First of all, uh, a one-hour drive away is a gated community called Treasure Lake, which is a enclave for very well-to-do people. It's got a golf course. It's got two reservoirs. Mm -hmm. So we want to, first of all, ask ourselves, well, do the people at Treasure Lake have the treasure? Seems like they've got a lot of money. But even more so, there's one thing that immediately jumps out, which is that also an hour drive away is Kerwinsville, Pennsylvania. This small settlement was named for John Kerwin in 1799. Uh, We all know that Joseph Kerwin of Case of Charles Dexter Ward of fame. His first death occurred in uh, 1711. Mm-hmm. So John Kerwin could be a descendant, uh, could be a homunculus, could be a doppelganger. Uh, this is a, about an eight-hour drive away from Kerwin's birthplace in uh, Danbury, Connecticut. And therefore, I think that what we can tell and by the way, it, this can't be the same John Kerwin who's a music educator uh, from Britain because he's uh, a century later. So obviously, Kerwinsville suggests that what is really in that catch, what the FBI was so anxious to get at and could not let any uh, detectors look at, was this clearly possibly, you know, housed in special gold caskets or, or what have you, would be essential salts and key essential salts of people that the FBI and the American government do not want necromancers getting their hands on and resurrecting, and you got to keep them under Kerwinsville. Yeah, I um, I will point out also that there was a giant mysterious bird seen over Dense Run in 1892, and it's seen again in the 30s. So we have possible Biaki action going on, which would, as you say, implicate Kerwin and the team of uh, necromancers. There is, in the story, a mysterious necromancer named G, who just lives in Philadelphia and is not taken out by uh, the wizard at the end of the story. So, maybe that's uh, Treasure Lake is where he hangs out with his other immortal rich buddies, and Kerwinsville is the town that he established as a refuge for his old buddy Joseph after the sad events of 1771 when he was hunted by the Rhode Island Patriots. So all manner of possibilities lurking around a dense run. Uh, if this were the Elliptony hut and not the crime hut. Right. And if it were the Elliptony hut and not the, the crime blotter, we would then have to wonder where the FBI has stored all of those essential salts, because perhaps your mission as player characters is to rescue them from the rogue element of the FBI that wants to use them for resurrections or to protect that underprotected facility from the necromancers who are uh, coming for them. Yeah, for G and his team of uh, rich jerks who live in Treasure Lake. 
Allegedly. Allegedly. And on that note, let's uh, get to a very non-alleged other segment on the other side of this commercial. The best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Lacking gold, we must seek the aid of beloved Patreon backers like you. And also like... Neil Dalton. Neil Kaplan. Tom Abella. Bill Sirwan. And Drew Clowry. The howling at the moon, the rattle of chains, and the detailed stat block tell us that we're once more in proximity of the Monster Hut. Then welcoming us into the Monster Hut today is beloved Patreon backer Joshua Hillerup, very brave of Joshua to come out to the Monster Hut all alone and to request a segment about the Avar Talk or Our Talk, Our Talk. Right. Yeah. So it's spelled A B H A R T A C H. It's Gaelic, so we know that, that you pronounce it Katrina. Exactly. You pronounce or, none of those or words. Our Talk. And especially Joshua's interested in the vampire angle of the folklore. And Robin, I hesitate to lead with the premise rejecting, so maybe we'll save that for a bit. So what can you tell us about the R-Talk? Right. So first of all, the previous version of the R-Talk is much more interesting than the vampire version, which is, I think, what you're getting to, because the original one is an alchemist sorcerer dwarf who has to be killed three times in order to uh, finally die. So this legend was first collected in 1870, and I guess there's some wordplay. There's a dolmond named Slaughterverti in Northern Ireland. And, and then it's supposed to be called that, or it's not supposed to be. There's, there's a whole bunch of stuff about the name of the dolmen. So mm. you can tell this is real Irish legendary because it's just going There's on. There's a there's a theory that the little town name or the location name Slaughterverti means Tomb of the Artok or Rock of the Artok. Right. So there's uh, this dwarf tyrant necromancer. And in the original version, he's not a vampire, but he's demanding blood from people. So you can see why that connection is made. And there is a hero who may be the Okahan and or the Okean, I believe. Or Okean. And they of course, as as heroes do, he goes off to fight the evil wizard, kills him, and buries him standing up, uh, which I guess is the first thing you do with an evil wizard. But then the Artok comes back to life, causes more trouble, and is killed again. At some point in there he's demanding blood to drink, possibly uh, and again, I guess this is more the vampire bit. And then he comes back to life yet again, demands more blood, 
And then at this point, the hero goes to the uh, non-player character informant, or possibly the player character who was absent the previous week, and learns that the way to deal with the Artok when you kill him, burying him standing up is only half the job. You have to bury him upside down vertically. And there's more details. You, you have to use a U-sword. So, of course, there's a segment where you have to go and quest for the U-sword. You need to ring the grave with thorns. And then you put the previously mentioned dolmen on top of the grave of the Artok in order to uh, keep him there. So, so far, he's sort of a singular entity. He's not like a class of monsters, but in true D&D fashion, uh, by the time we're turning him into a, a, a monster for your characters to fight, we're going to have to turn him into a, like a, a, a type specimen, and it's just sort of a category of creature, right? Right, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, Artok is just his name, although it means dwarf, so it's not much of a name, but it's like Dracula is saying we're going to go hunt Dracula's, well, good, but Dracula's a proper name. Artok is a proper name. So all the blood details don't appear in the 1870 version of the legend. Most of the stuff about the blood and the use sword and the rest of it first seems to appear in an article by a folklorist named Bob Curran. And I will just say that other folklorists make faces when you say, oh, Bob Curran said the Artok is a vampire. And right, because there's a whole effort here. We're getting back into things in Bram Stoker's notes, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> which we've recently discussed previously, where there's a an effort to make Dracula Irish. Right. And so they've taken this previous legend of the super cool, blood-demanding or not blood-demanding, but at least super cool necromancer evil dwarf who comes back from the dead possibly chieftain mm. and then trying to make him into more of a vampire and that's where the, the blood gets added to the stories right and there's other versions of the story besides the 1871 that also predate bob curran in the 1897 version he's not killed by the O'Kane, he's killed by finn mccool who is sort of the hercules of ireland and Finn hits him in his only vulnerable spot, and that's how he kills him. He doesn't have any use sword nonsense, but he uh, chews his own thumb and figures out the vulnerable spot, which I assume either means it's because his thumb has still got the salmon of knowledge on it, and so he's just, you know, learning. Or maybe the vulnerable spot is the guy's thumb, and he's like, oh, but that would hurt if I did that to that dwarf. And so that's what right. he does. And this one doesn't have the three-part structure where you kill him and fail, kill him and fail. No, F- Finn yeah. McCool just knows how to kill a monster and does it. Heracles would not be goofing around with some three death guy. He just, you know, when Antaeus who comes back from the dead fights Heracles, he just rips him in half, you know, and takes him out in other versions. Abartok is jealous of his wife because he thinks no wife would be faithful to a hideous evil dwarf, such as myself, a sorcerer and a necromancer and all that. And so he's spying on his wife by peeking in her upstairs window and he slips and falls and dies in the courtyard and be the I dumbest named monster death of all time. Yeah. And, and on on the general thesis that the dumber and more ludicrous a detail, the more likely it is to be the original version of the story. I kind of like that. But I also kind of like the O'Kane coming in and saying, you guys seem to have an evil uh, sorcerer of our talk problem. Let me take care of that for you. And having to do it three times just because it's funny. So the the vampire connection is also connected to a bunch of other there's a story that uh, Montague Stummers has about an Irish vampire, and then there's another similarly drifty version of a vampire that lives down in County Kerry, allegedly called the Dracfola, but that doesn't seem to be good Gaelic or good folklore either. 
So lots of, you know, did Bram Stoker find out about these Irish vampires and did that impel him to do uh, his cool vampire story, as opposed to, I don't know, the hundreds of years of Central European vampire legends that we know he read about. So whatever. Speaking of looking at maps, Robin, the Slagaverti Dolmen is about two miles southwest of the Garvog Pyramid, which was built for George Canning, the first Baron Garvog. He went to Egypt, got very excited by pyramids, came back and said, I want a pyramid, build me a pyramid so I can lie in it when I die. But then he died in France and no one thought to send his body back for the pyramid. So it just, and his wife, by the way, uh, when she died, she said, do not put me in that pyramid. That's disgusting. (laughs) So George Canning's cousin was prime minister. So if you're thinking George Canning, that name sounds familiar. That's why. And George Canning, the prime minister was haunted by a black dog that followed him around. So that's more information about this story because the Canning family took the land. It said acquired the land in the source I found, which is so nice when a uh, a wealthy Protestant family shows up and gets land in Ireland. Yeah. Land has gotten the land has been gotten, but it's the O'Kane's land that uh, Garvog house is built on. So there is real, maybe questioning stuff going on just like there is for a different Irish legend via Bartok, which is also probably not pronounced that way, and in some cases is spelled just like our Artok, which means the feet performing one, and this is a Fomor, which means he's a giant, not a dwarf, so he's the opposite, and he shows up and he says, I want to join the Fianna, please let me join the Fianna, the cool magic uh, hero team. And uh, he says, I'll give you this great horse if you let me join the Fianna. And the 14 members of the Fianna all get on the horse, and then the horse runs off to hell with them. And, oh, my goodness, Abartok just laughs and laughs. And so they have to hunt him down and uh, get the guys back out of hell. And it's a big thing. And it turns out, Robin, he doesn't get to join the Fianna as a result of that. So there is a hell connection, a coming back from hell connection, a weird magic a mess with you connection, not quite the cruel sorcery, but still pretty unpleasant. And the not the normal size of Irish people part. So is there a connection to the feet forming one versus the dwarf? You decide, I guess. Right. So at any rate, I guess our assignment now is to turn this into a, a generic F20 creature. A proper monster. Of which there are many. Yes. And I think the the less vampire one, the evil dwarf with the spells, is uh, the compelling one. And I think the cool gimmick there is the fact that it, the first time you kill it, you know it's going to come back another two times. Mm-hmm. And I think you want to specify that it's not common knowledge how you permanently kill it the third time. Mm-hmm. I think you also probably want to say that it doesn't, even if you know the way to permanently bury it properly, it's still got to rise three times before it'll you can finally put it to rest. So mm-hmm. But the rock won't stay on top of it if it isn't the third time. And of course, as... Uh, designing the scenario, you make sure there's very good reason why the players have to kill the creature. Maybe the first time they don't know it's an Artok. And of course, when it comes back, it always comes back to get revenge against the player characters who killed it. That's uh, just basic uh, Monster Manual 101. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go on a little side quest or journey or find somebody who knows or do some research in order to figure out exactly how you bury it permanently the third time. Or it'll just keep coming back again mm-hmm. and again. And possibly it tracks your level increase so that if you go up levels in between your encounters with it, well, so so does it because it's 
a matter and it's uh borrowed some blood from some people right. to, it, it uh, drained levels from other people when you weren't looking because it's exactly. a f20 vampire yeah yeah and i think that the uh, it doesn't fight you by biting you and taking your blood it fights you with its its magic and its trickery you can tie that to the fomor maybe it's got a death gaze like fomors have on maybe it's just got various kinds of horrible magic that it does yeah and it summons spirits and skeletons and mm-hmm. zombies and stuff and yep it, yeah it's got it's got a, a a fast tap to the underworld but i uh, assume he's also got magic that sort of racks you and twists you around and maybe like in the finn mccool version it can only be hit in one spot and so it's harder to hit than a regular dwarf magician would be yeah yeah either just a super high uh, armor class or uh, you have to hit him with a called shot depending mm-hmm. on your version of f20 yep well now that we've told you how to kill the monster in the monster hut it's time to close it up for another week and see what other huts and or segments await this podcast In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to weave our way up the crickety cobweb stairs. We're going to stop on the landing. We're going to wave at the jaunty fire salamander who's going to wave back his He's jaunty. I said that already. Mm-hmm. We're going to head on in to the Edwardian parlor. And there in his smoking jacket is the consulting occultist. And this time around, he's here to tell us about a uh, sort of a classic spiritualist of the classic age of uh, mediums, Helene Smith. She's sometimes referred to as a French medium, which is weird because she's Swiss, Ken. Yeah, but she's French Swiss, I guess, or Although her dad was Hungarian, so she's Hungaro-French-Swiss, I guess. But anyway, uh, her name was Elise Catherine Muller. You see it as Catherine Elise Muller in some sources, but apparently the most recent biography of her dug around and found that it was Elise Catherine, so we're going to say that from now on. Born in 1861, as you say, in Martigny, Switzerland, which is outside Geneva. Her mother had ecstatic Christian visions, so she was sort of aware of that side of the universe and begins working as a sales girl in a silk store in Geneva in 1874 when she's 13 and keeps doing that. That's her job. She's sort of a drifty girl, doesn't pay attention, doesn't really make much of herself. 
And as a result, perhaps of her mom, perhaps of the driftiness, perhaps of being bored working in a silk store in Geneva, she becomes a spiritualist in 1891 and joins a spiritualistic circle. And sure enough, Robin, it turns out she has a gift. And so she begins table tapping. She begins levitating things. She does all the spirit stuff. And in 1892, she has a mediumistic conversation with Victor Hugo, beloved author, who it turns out is going to be very, very popular in the spirit world. I don't know what he was like in the real world. If he was a healthful, well-met, glad hand all around guy. And and at that point, he's not long dead. That's just seven years after his death. But she's getting in on the ground floor of seeing Victor Hugo in the afterlife. And he's apparently there. He's like the, you know, the, the boxer they hired to greet at the casino in the afterlife, I guess. And uh, then a new spirit guide in a monk's robe named Leopold spends about a year resting control of her away from Victor Hugo and is revealed during that to be the magician Cagliostro. And uh, when Leopold speaks through her, she has a bass voice and she moves her head around. So she gets a double chin, just like drawings of Cagliostro. So it's very exciting. And word of this gets around. She's kind of a big deal in spirit circles. She's doing seances for Professor Quendet of the Geneva Society for Psychic Studies. And that's how the psychologist or psychology professor Theodore Flournoy at the University of Geneva hears about her and he gets introduced to her. And if you sort of read between the lines, I think they have a little mutual crush. I think that, you know, he describes her and he says, she's much cuter than other spiritualists that you meet. And of course, when she would go on her little past lives, she would often say, oh, and you were there, Theodore, and you were my boyfriend. And it's uh, very sweet. So uh, she carries on her trances, does automatic writing. So she's doing writing. She's doing trances. And this is sort of one of her big claims to fame is that she either popularized or reintroduced automatic writing. She's sort of, and later the surrealists, uh, who really love automatic writing, treat her as one of their uh, totems for that reason. Right, yeah. She even winds up in the surrealist tarot as the mermaid, so good for her. Anyway, her first past life is that of Marie Antoinette. I guess that's your starter past life that everyone gets. Um, Actually, her first past life was as a different character from Marie Antoinette's court, but someone commits the faux pas during the seance of saying, Dumas made that character up. They didn't exist. And uh, I assume she says, oh, oh, oh the spirit's... They're so pranky. I was actually Marie Antoinette. Shut up. And that is what happens. And then after Marie Antoinette begins to be a little played out and people get tired of being ordered around, she becomes the Arab princess Simandini, who married the Hindu king of Chandraguri in 1401 or thereabouts. And then she dies of Sati after he dies. And it's very tragic. And she remembers being burned alive at the end of of his life. And that is in which she reveals that the Hindu king was actually Theodore Flournoy in a a previous life. And that's sort of their boyfriend, girlfriend, past life seance time. It's nice when the spirits shift for you. Yes. And then in November of 1894, she goes to Mars. And this is when, as far as I'm personally concerned, things get really fun. She has a spirit guide on Mars named Astane. Leopold shows her how to get to Mars. And when she goes there, it's exciting. It's great fun. She goes there a great deal between 1896 and 1898. She describes carriages gliding by with no horses or wheels, but emitting sparks, houses with fountains on the roof, men dressed like women, women dressed like men, Mars messed up. Also, dogs with cabbage heads that would take dictation for you. So that's pretty exciting. And then... As Mars got a little played out, 
maybe uh, she was writing things in Martian and people were saying, that sounds an awful lot like French. And so she went to a different planet, Ultramars, that had a different language. And just to prove that she wasn't making it up, she also went to Uranus. So that was very exciting. Other spiritualists, this is not her idea, or I mean, it might be her idea, but it's something in the water. A spiritualist named Sarah Weiss went to Mars from 1892 to 1894. And another spiritualist named Mrs. Willis Cleveland uh, went to Mars in 1895 and also in 1900. So Mars is very big. It's in the water. This is when Percival Lowell and uh, Schiaparelli are mapping the canals and, and looking at Mars, and there's all the Mars excitement. So in 1899, Flournoy writes up sort of the journal of this six-year period that he spent with her in a book called From India to the Planet Mars, in which he gives the, her the pseudonym of Helene Smith, which is how she is known to the, the wider world, pretty much. And in that book, in the sweetest possible prose, he's so nice, he mentions, oh, turns out I found a book that had uh, the exact story of Simondini and the Hindu king, sure enough. And it was right there in the Geneva Public Library. And surely she couldn't have found that book. And he talks about, you know, the imaginary character that she was incarnated as. He brings in Ferdinand Saussure, the founder of modern linguistics, to analyze her Martian language. And Saussure says it's basically a one-for-one swap out of French. There's some loan words from Hungarian. I wonder where that came from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Flournoy says she's not a hoaxer. She is evidencing cryptomnesia, which is where you see something at one point, your mind suppresses it, and then it comes out in another often fabulized story or life experience. And so he says that she's basically, I mean, they didn't have multiple personality at that point, but if they had, that's what he would have said. But that she has these suppressed memories that are acting out through her spiritualist trances. Now, despite the very, very nice things that he says about her in his book, she gets super mad that he's casting doubt on her spiritualist gifts. They have a great big fight. She throws him out of the seance group and she demands and gets half the royalties from his book, which I think is very, very big minded of Flournoy personally. But there we are. But the book gives gigantic publicity. It's a huge bestseller. And an American spiritualist, a rich woman named Mrs. Jackson, says, you shouldn't be working at that silk shop. You have a gift. I'm just going to pay you a stipend to become a full-time psychic explorer and artist. And uh, Mrs. Jackson apparently keeps that money going for the rest of her life because that's what she does. Even though in 1903, she switches from Mars and whatnot to, she goes to the moon a bit, but Leopold shows her a vision of Christ and says, you will draw him. And so she paints religious paintings for the next 12 years, mostly finger painting them, doing it again in an automatic trance state, according to her diary of the situation. She dies in 1929 in Geneva, and her Hungarian father's family claims all of her paintings and writings, and that's why they're mostly gone, as they went to Hungary. And, well, <laughs> that that was it. But she remains famous and beloved, not just to the surrealists, but I think to anyone who is interested in fun Martian stuff, which I feel like is all of us, Robin. Right. So uh, she's active in 1895, but she's in Geneva, not Paris. So in order to get her into the Yellow King role-playing game, you will have to contrive a non-existent trip to Paris, mm -hmm. but that's easily enough done. I think the cool, interesting uh, sort of springboard for gaming here, though, is that uh, she is your route to get the characters from Earth to Mars for a Martian Canals, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Bellapoc style planetary adventures game where she uh, initially 
uh, teaches you how to contact Mars, and then uh, you learn the secret of that, and you are able to possess other bodies on Mars, and then gradually, of course, you realize that your consciousness is stuck there, and you have to do things on Mars in order to free your astral beings in order to get back to your bodies on Earth. Yeah, there's a an imputation in some of her teachings that Mars is sort of another anteroom for the souls of humans and that they go to Mars and Mars is like the summer land. So another version of this that I've suggested in a previous suppressed transmission is that your characters are going along in their lives, maybe in 1890s, maybe not, and they die. And instead of it being total party kill and let's roll everybody up again, nope, you wake up and you're on Mars, but you're on weird spiritualist Edgar Rice Burroughs Mars, not proper Mars. And you know, that's where dead people go is Mars. And you have to figure that out and say, can we get back to earth? Is there a way to get back to earth and reincarnate ourselves on earth? And maybe you can go from the pyramids of Mars to the pyramids in Egypt and bop out and reincarnate yourselves into Egypt and get new, exciting earth bodies again and continue fun adventures beginning. I assume taking revenge on whoever killed you and sent you to Mars, right? Right. A more sort of horror twist on that idea is that you, when your spiritual essence uh, translates to Mars, uh, you can't occupy the body of anybody that has a consciousness in it already. That's, that's taken, that's occupied. Mm -hmm. And so what you have to do is you have to animate the bodies of dead Martians. But you can only do that so long because it's a dead Martian and mm -hmm. they eventually start to fall apart so that you either are, your adventures are on a time clock where you are thrown back onto Earth once your uh, body expires and then have to cast yourself to the other planet again to continue whatever big mission you're doing. Possibly, in this case, you're trying to, to prevent an invasion. So you could rope in the, the Wells Martians, right? right? Yeah, speaking of vampires. <laughs> right. And so you keep having these temporary, very fragile bodies uh, on Mars that keep falling apart as you go th through stage by stage through the mission to try and uh, stop the uh, imminent invasion of Earth by the, uh, by the tripods. And you can also, of course, flip it the other way that the Martians, uh, Astonae, are in contact with the Earth, obviously. They're talking to at least Catherine Muller. And maybe Astonae is not a good guy, or maybe there's other Martians that are not good guys, and they translate themselves to Earth. And like you say, they can't go to living humans, so they go into dead humans. But because they're Martian, they have vampire powers, because that's what H.G. Wells tells us about the Martians. And that can be the origin of your Knights Black Agents vampires, is that they're astrally projected from Mars. And that's why they have these weird dogs with cabbage heads that can talk and uh, carry objects and do all the other weird stuff that uh, her Martians could do, but they do it on Earth with their weird Martian powers. Right. So once you, uh, if you're in Paris in 1895 and you see a cabbage-headed dog, you know that uh, uh, things are going weird because possibly, you know, in addition to being able to, uh, maybe Mars isn't Mars at all. Maybe it's Carcosa. So that could uh, explain uh, things as well. Well, on that note, I think uh, we've got uh, plenty of grist for plenty of mills and can uh, pronounce uh, this episode victorious and come back uh, next week with another one, which will also prove victorious. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Keep this podcast safe from Celtic blood draining by joining such stalwart backers as... Andrew Dacey. Andy M. Young. Michael Harrison. Oren Gashuri. And Paul and Cleo Bushland. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate densely packed biomes with our latest design, You Are a Special Island. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.Camp. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.